Every week, Hillsdale College President Larry Arn joins Hugh Hewitt to discuss great books, great men, and great ideas. This is the Hillsdale Dialogues, presented by Hillsdale College. To find more episodes, search for Hillsdale Dialogues at SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, iHeart, and Ricochet. Morning, glory, America. Bonjour, high Canada. I'm Hugh Hewitt from Studio North. After a summer of Aristotle's ethics and Monday's special edition of the Hillsdale Dialogues with Dr. Marino and Dr. Walsh uh, about the labor movement with Dr. Larry Arn as well. Dr. Larry Arn is back in live and in person on the second day of September 2022. Are you ready for the new school year, Dr. Arn, at Hillsdale? Doesn't matter. It's happening. It <laughs> doesn't matter if you're ready, they're coming. Um, how many people have you got now enrolled in the college, Dr. Arn? Uh, it's about 1,650, I think. That we is, can't keep track anymore. Well, that's a good problem to have. Uh, before we go into the education situation in America, next week we're going to talk about the political situation. And then we're going to dive into these books, The History of the English-Speaking People, for a few weeks. Before I do that, I noticed on Twitter this week that one of my favorite governors, Glenn Youngkin, made a pilgrimage to Hillsdale, and I say that because it's increasingly a must-stop place for Democrats and Republicans alike and independents who are concerned about education. What did the Virginia governor come to Hillsdale for? Uh, he called it a pilgrimage. Uh, he says, he says uh, he's been reading in Primus for 20 or 30 years. Oh. He's got an office full of Hillsdale stuff, and he knew a lot about it. And he proposed himself. He was campaigning in Michigan uh, for various people, Tudor Dixon, especially a Republican nominee for governor. And he just was a delightful man. Uh, I, I, just, I had a hoot of a time with him. I walked him around the campus and we talked, and then I got about 30 or 40 students in a room to ask him questions, and he just knocked the cover off the ball. I interviewed him in front of a group of rising Beltway smart people, and they're all under 40. And he just knocked the cover off that, because he talks about what parents care about, education and freedom. And that's what they care about. Yeah. He, uh, I, 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 I'll say two things about him. One was uh, the students asked him about education, and he said, never talk about education without beginning with the word parent. Because uh, that's you know that's the natural law, right? We have, we're taking children away from parents, which is the hallmark of totalitarian government. And so he wants to put them back there, and I think that's how he won. Uh, another thing is his character shows up all the time. He he uh, the students ask him to take uh, controversial views. You know they're poking him, prodding him. And his, he answered once, he said, well, I think more in terms of and than in terms of or. And I said, explain that. And uh, he said, well, whatever somebody's claiming, there's usually something to it. So just reply and. Ah. <laughs> and I said, uh, yeah, maybe I'm too much of an or guy. Uh, yeah, he's, uh, he's, he's a talent. I, I, I uh, adjured him. Uh, you know, they have a one-term system in Virginia. Correct. Which is dumb. And Correct. And, and the I'm a Virginian. Of, I know this to be dumb. Yeah, Th Thomas Jefferson did it. And as I always say, 
James Madison must have been out of town. <laughs> I have never heard that before. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, James uh, Jefferson wrote a bunch of letters to Madison during the Constitutional Convention, and one of them is the dumbest letter he ever wrote. Uh, every law, every contract, every everything should every constitution should sunset every 30 years. Oh, dear. Because it's wrong. The earth belongs to the living, and we should not privilege the, uh, we should not privilege the next generation, our will on the next. And so James Madison, you know, who's artful and really brilliant, uh, he, and, and could, you know, he was Thomas Jefferson's closest friend. He writes him back, you know, to Paris, and he says, yeah, I said, that's, those are all really good points. And he says, and. <laughs> he says it would be the specific purpose of the con- of a constitution to prejudice uh, policy for a long time. So, and Jefferson wrote him back and said, okay, you're right. <laughs> and, and by the way, um, if people ever decide to change to that system, they can in the states assembled uh, do that. But only in the states assembled. They can't amend the Constitution to get rid of the Senate or the United States government. But the possibility of change is always there. We just don't want it. Uh, so, I want to ask you, Dr. Arn, before I begin on so many different things, about the subject about which I wrote in the Washington Post last week, the student loan forgiveness, which I consider to be a moral hazard, unconstitutional, and a disaster for everyone. How's it playing on Hillsdale where no federal aid is accepted? Uh, well, we haven't noticed. Uh, I mean, I have noticed. I'm very concerned about it. Our friend Brian Westbury and his Monday yes. Morning Outlook wrote about it, and he, he detailed some features in it that are worse than I knew. Uh, for example, uh, nobody has to make a repayment of a loan if the repayment constitutes more than 5% of their income. And what that does is it gives students an incentive to pile up debt. And, you know, they can even borrow living expenses. And some kids go to, go to school for a long time now living on student loans. And the loan agent is the college that gets the money, and the college is not responsible for non-repayment. And so it's just the worst possible. It's been that way forever, and now it's worse because now the forgiveness is written into the law. And, well, is it written into the law? It is not. Does the President of the United States actually have the power he does not. Uh, Ron DeSantis on this show the morning after said, let's begin with the fact that it's unconstitutional, that that does not bother President Biden. It bothers me quite a lot because if he can do it, everyone can do it. And who wouldn't? You're buying, I think the Wall Street Journal called it raw vote buying. It's, uh, it's you know, this, uh, uh, for one reason or another, I've been studying the structure of the education system lately. And it is an engine to produce uh, progressive politics. Uh, here's the numbers. Uh, since 2000, so 22 years, the number of students in public education has risen 7.5%, and the number of teachers has risen 8.5%, and the number of administrators has risen 87%. Wow. And that's Department of Education numbers. You can go to the National Center for Education Statistics at the Department of Education. That's where all that is. And 
I, I think they'll soon take it down because it's embarrassing. But what it means is now there's an administrator for every teacher. And what do all these people do? Because the administrators, they, they never get in the, in the vicinity of the students. And that means that they're not teachers. They must be telling people how to teach. And then sure enough, you look at the regulations, and it's a constant barrage uh, of... <clears throat> Do this, do that, right? And they, you know, the the the, uh, the ed schools. I have a couple of people here uh, who are graduates of ed schools, PhDs from ed schools, and uh, somehow they emerged immune to all that, in full rebellion about all that. One of them is the dean of our new Masters of Classical Education program, which is to teach people to be school leaders, but they're studying the classics. And uh, uh, so he says, that these two guys tell me their names are Dan Copeland and John Gregg, who's just finishing his Ph.D. now. And uh, they tell me that uh, what's happening, what, what's, it started with this. It was the early progressivism. It was everything is process and method. You don't have to know anything. You just have to know how to tell people things. And then later, we will tell you what to say. That- you know, uh, Dr. Ern, my, my son, who is now a naval officer, got his master's in education, was a teacher for a while. And when he got his master's, he would come home and say, this is the most wasteful use of my time ever. And it's just, it was all ideology. It's yeah. simply ideology, the master's of education program that he attended. You, t- you, you get the uh, idea it's just exactly wrong, by the way, about education, because education involves taking yourself out of the question. You know, to understand a thing, you must address yourself to that thing. And the question, what you think about that, that thing, only comes later. So, you know, around here, uh, everybody, we're very corrupt here. And that means everybody learns not to say, my perspective is. Ah. Uh. Because... What is that thing? You know, I love to ask kids, what is the good? It's very easy to get them, they, you know, because people do it in ordinary speech all the time. If you ask them why they're doing a thing, it will soon lead to, it's good. And then ask them, what is the good? The good. When we come back, we did that for 10 weeks in the ethics class that we aired on the Salem News Channel and this radio show for the past 10 weeks. But Dr. Arn is back, live with new stories and new things on the Hillsdale Dialogue. All Hillsdale Dialogues at Hugh for Hillsdale.com. Hillsdale.edu for all things Hillsdale, including that Imprimus, which Governor Yunkin's been reading for 20 years. Stay tuned. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. Dr. Larry Arn is my guest. The Hillsdale Dialogue, the last radio hour of the week, is underway. Dr. Arn and I are talking about education. A question has arisen, arisen among people of my ilk, Dr. Arn, about who has standing to stop the president's unconstitutional executive order for giving a trillion dollars in student debt. I actually think Hillsdale College does, because I believe you are injured by this because your students have not accumulated federal debt, and so you are adversely impacted by that. You've got a bunch of Supreme Court clerks who are alums of Hillsdale. I hope you ask them about that. 
I know you're not in the business of suing people, but we do need a plaintiff somewhere to bring a lawsuit to enjoin this. You know, I hadn't thought of that. Uh, That's why you talk to me. I occasionally come up with a piece of... I probably won't do it, but... uh, Yeah, but it's it's worth thinking about. I think you are injured. I mean, it's, you know, isn't it true that anybody who has a student loan and paid it off has standing? I don't know that they have standing because their standing is based upon a current injury, not a past wrong that can be remedied. You've got to have a wrong that can be remedied. What they are doing is incentivizing attendance at every college not named Hillsdale or any other college that doesn't accept federal money because all student loans come with federal agency. So they have incentivized everyone to go to any college except Hillsdale, which is an injury to Hillsdale that is ongoing by virtue of that which gets rewarded gets repeated. And if, if any president can do this, they can do it again. And I do think that's right. I do think you have standing. Uh, maybe someone will endow your chair in legal uh, uh, pestering, because we have to pester the American people back into being constitutionalists. Dr. Aron, i got to ask you, there is a term moral hazard that economists throw around. When the government does something that encourages morally objectionable behavior, and that's been much used in terms of this forgiveness, but I'm curious, in an era without morals, how can you have a moral hazard? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, you can't have uh, an era without morals. We're just trying to develop new ones, and, and they don't work, right? So uh, it's uh, wrong to contract the debt and not pay it back. You gave your word, and, but it's forgivable now in narrow circumstances. Uh, like, you better pay your income tax, or they'll put you in the pokey. Uh, but don't pay back your student loan, well, that's just debt, right? And we're just, you know, I mean, if somebody, McKinsey or somebody, did an essay, this thing's going to cost a trillion dollars. Trillion dollars, yeah. And, and, you know, a trillion here, a trillion there. It's, uh, I think the gross domestic product of the country is, 18 or 19 trillion. So it's just like you've added another year on your mortgage payment. The immediate effect is inflation. And already groceries went up 13%. I know that you've got a couple of youngins around, like I did most of the summer. I had all five grandchildren here. I believe you have two in near proximity. They eat a lot. They eat a lot. Those youngsters eat a lot. I can't imagine a family of three going to the grocery store once a week and having to buy groceries in this environment. And they just added fuel to the fire. What do you think President Biden thought he was doing by this politically? Well, I, I, you know, I actually think that it's, you know, it's hard to tell what President Biden thinks because when you listen to him talk, you can't tell that he does. But um, the people around him, what do they think? They're doing the Great Reset. They're going to change the basis of human relations, and we're going to have an allocated society. And the direct, I mean, if you, if you read what comes out of Davos, there's a recent imprimis called The Great Reset. You can read it. And what are they saying? They're saying we have to go to the allocated society for a lot of reasons. But the big one is people are using up too much stuff, and we've got to make it not possible for them to do that. And that's, you know, one reason why uh, fuel prices are so high, right? They, they have stifled production. We were an oil-exporting country four years, no, three years ago, 
and now we're borrowing money to buy fuel. The new Prime Minister of Great Britain, Liz Truss, has promised to increase oil production in the North Sea. For that alone, she should win, but I hope she's out Thatcher's Thatcher's. I'll be right back with Dr. Larry Arn. I'm Hugh Hewitt. The Hillsdale Dialogue is back live with Dr. Larry Arn after a summer of the Aristotle's ethics. In two weeks, on September the 16th, we will begin a long series on the history of the English-speaking peoples by Winston Churchill. I have had to battle with Dr. Arn about how much time we spend on it. If I had my way, we'd spend a, a, a day for every chapter in it. But Dr. Arn says there are other things that Churchill has written that we have to read. Because I don't think people emerge from high school, much less... Uh, elementary school with even a basic outline of American history, Dr. Arn. Do you agree with me? It's a, so I commend this to anybody. Uh, you should put together in your mind a timeline of recorded history. And it turns out it's not that difficult to do. Uh, the best single two hours I ever spent was walking around a circular museum in, in uh, Jerusalem. And up on the wall, they had the big events. If you, if you started at the first, you know, if you started in Mesopotamia, and and uh, you know that's Abraham and before, and you walk the circle, uh, you finish the space space age, and you're back at the beginning. And that's just a great thing to do, right? And it's it's uh, and so, and you know, British history is long, much longer than ours. And uh, and so, you know, Churchill and uh, you know Churchill's book. Churchill was not an academic historian, and uh, you don't even want me to say this, but it it's it's probably not his greatest book. He did win a Nobel Prize for it, but uh, it is delightful because he explains things in in light of the rights that people have to live well. According to their own volition, his his way of putting it was uh, leave to li- uh, no leave to live by no man's leave beneath the law, and Britain developed that, and and Churchill explains how that came to be. It has a lot to do with the sea and the fact that it was a sea power and not a land power, and that means it didn't have big armies, and that means when the king had a contest with the parliament. He often lost, and that you know that. Uh, so if if you look in the continental powers, the continent you know, France and those Germany, uh, then what happened is you have to have a whacking big army because the neighbors have a whacking big army, and that gave the king the upper hand, and, and not and so, so much in Britain. And what I want people to know is that. Each of the four volumes of the history of the English-speaking people has three books in it. We will be doing one class with Dr. Ron on each book. And if you right now cannot do a timeline of how we got where you are right now, and that means you individually and we as a country, then you are not well-educated. And I insist that my law students get there. And you have to know the Jews and the Greeks and the Romans, the English and the Americans to get there. And by the way, he begins with the Romans. Julius Caesar is standing on the uh, French side of the channel when the history of the English-speaking people begin. And then we end up right before the Great War, the first one. Dr. Arm, we're talking about education this morning. That's a preview of coming attractions. And I have two books here. 
The Dying Citizen by Victor Davis Hanson, and The Death of Learning by John Agresto. Now, both of these men are my friends. I think you are friends with Agresto. I'm not sure. Yeah. I know you are. With And this is a very good book on the on the dying, the death of learning. And The Dying Citizen is an excellent book. But they're both talking about the death of something central that we would never have assumed possible to die, education and citizenry. And I believe they're connected. What do you think? Well, that's uh, so I, I think that we're living in the grimmest times since the Civil War, myself. And, and one of the causes of it is the death of the idea that each of us is responsible to his maker, each of us is equipped to figure out the world for himself, and each of us has a right to do that. And so we don't, in, in education... You know, the, the, uh, we're having our capstone course for the first half of the senior class, and the first one last night. And that's me giving a whacking big lecture about why we study what we study at the college, to summarize and remind. And you can do it from Aristotle. It, it, you know, cause I can because that's what I love. But uh, uh, what is education about? It's about an understanding of the good and what it is to be a good human being. And civil, the story of civilization is the story of the working of that activity. And when it dies, and right now it is suppressed, uh, I mean, you know, I, I said before about this, what we've done, we've, we've moved the power and the money distant from the schools in the education system. And there's a side effect of that. The education bureaucracy is one of the strongest forces in politics, and it's allied with the press, and that's why you can get candidates for governor in Virginia saying parents ought not to have anything to do with the schools. And that's what Terry McAuliffe did, and he lost, though. That was hopeful. He lost. Yeah, and, you know, Youngkin is a special man, very talented man, and he beat him. It's funny when he talks about that. He says that on the night that McAuliffe said that, said that they gave him three or four chances to take it back or modify it, and he doubled down every time. And so he was, you know, first of all, I guess it didn't occur to him that he could lose, but, uh, you know, that's an article of faith with him. If the society is to make progress, continual progress all the time, it has to be subjected to the control of experts, and parents are not experts. And let me mention the old argument for parents, right? Uh, it isn't right for any human being to own another human being. Children are a special case because they're not of age. They're not fully competent yet. And so the people appointed in nature to act for them are their parents. And so the individual right each one of us has to guide his own life accrues through nature to our control of our minor children. We are obliged to act in their interest, and we are the ones most likely to do that because what a crazy thing it is to have kids anyway. And the love that unites parents and children is one of the main forces in society. We are actually trying to extinguish that love. Working hard at it every day. But I believe a lot of the election, we're going to talk about the political situation in the United States next week, but I believe a lot of it 
connects up with the fundamental, as you like to say, fundamental things are afoot. Parents have woken up in the last two years. And I know that you are deluged with applications. And I tell people every single day, do not wait around. I assume Hillsdale uses rolling applications, which means you've got to fill up your best and brightest class early, not exclusively early, but you, you pay more attention to those that come in early than those that come in late. So the application is at hillsdale.edu, and you're going to be under a wrap. A C is going to fill your admissions office, and I hope they are prepared for it because people are tired of this, Dr. Agresto, uh, Dr. Arn. And I talked yep. about it with Dr. Agresto. People are sick and tired of schools not educating. It's, you know, you, you uh, don't recognize your children. And, and you know, if you, if you go to visit the, the college where your children go, you are excluded, sometimes politely and sometimes not. And uh, here, you know, we, we're in charge of the college. We're the ones who know how to run a college. But we talk to the parents all the time. And if they have a question, we answer it. And we are not subject to the federal law, privacy laws, that, you know, like there was that young man who killed a lot of people and then himself in West Virginia, University of West Virginia, I think it was. And he had been in counseling, and the dean of women, the record show, was terrified what this boy might do. And she couldn't help him because it was illegal in West Virginia. Virginia, as it is nearly anywhere, to send a kid home because of mental disturbance. And it was illegal for her to talk to his parents about his condition unless she got a waiver from him or unless she made a finding that there's imminent danger of harm. That might be Virginia Tech. Uh, that, yeah, that was yeah, that. I, I think it's Virginia Tech, but I, 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 there are they're always disturbed and terribly tormented souls who have broken with reality, who threaten the body politic and you and me. And we have to remember the old saying, see something, say something. You can't do that in college land. Yeah, this, it's, this it's, fake place that we've created called college land. Adults can't be adults. It's, it's amazing to me. And, you know, you know, I, I, I have a certain humility about depression and stuff in kids because we have it here. And we have counseling, and we work on it. Also, we've got we're in, encouraging physical fitness, which is the best solution to yes. depression. But uh, uh, you know, you 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 have to watch all the time. We have 130 students who are resident advisors in the dorms, and they're leaders, and they're trained, and they look for trouble. And you know, we have some. And we try to spot it, and we try to get on it, and we try to take care of them. And if it's severe, we call the parents. And uh, there's a story about a boy. He's one of my favorite boys. I had him in class. He's just a brilliant young man. And he was schizophrenic. And that's like a death sentence, except this boy seems to have overcome it. But finally, you know, because why is it dangerous? Because... They imagine terrible things going on around them that aren't. And they can it need them. not be a death sentence, but it it's tragically becomes one when it is unattended to and unrecognized or ignored and not treated. That's right. And that, you know, that's a, it's very severe, right? Well, we worked that out with the parents. And I saw them not long ago. And 
it's a it's a lovely story. He he didn't finish here. He finished somewhere more specialized, but he's got his life in order. And I had that as a law professor only once in twenty five years, but we worked it out with the parents. Yeah, and that's, that's right. the only thing to do is to call mom and dad and say, "I have recognized in your son." I did this with the dean, of course. We have recognized in your son a terrible pattern of disassociation from reality. What are we going to do? He's bright. He's very smart when he's connected with reality. Well, we'll come back to that. Don't go anywhere, America. We're going to conclude our hour on education. I'm going to press Dr. Arn to sue Joe Biden in the Department of Education when we come back, so don't miss that. In mid-September, we're doing this book, The History of the English-Speaking People, Life-Changing, Absolutely the Spine of Western Civilization, in four volumes written by the great man himself, Winston Churchill. If you want to follow along, Dr. Arndt, Churchill Scholar and official biographer of, along with uh, uh, Martin Gilbert, Winston Churchill, get the book now. You'll find it's amazing, engrossing reading, and we're going to be talking about it for weeks and weeks to come here on the Hillsdale Dialogue. America. One of the stories that happened when Dr. Arn and I were not talking every week, you were listening every week to Dr. Arn, but I was not talking to him every week when the ethics played during the summer, is that I could not ask him about the $1.2 billion that no doubt his friend Leonard Leo picked up from some donor, uh, that I wish at least half of which had gone to Hillsdale, because Leonard works in the trenches of the day-to-day, and I'm glad that he does. But Hillsdale is work- worried about 30 years from now and 40 years from now. If you had gotten the $1.2 billion, I'd find it a lot easier to ask you to go sue Joe Biden and the Department of Education. But I really think this, this loan forgiveness has to be battled, Dr. Arndt. It has to be stopped. It's such well, a terrible policy. It, it, it's, it, it's bad. In, it, start with the fact that it's very bad for young people because it encourages them to do something. See, here's a limit, right? Uh, it's it's the reason why race preferences can't work. Uh, the limit is the learning is in the student, and the energy comes from the student, and they have to want to do it, right? And that means you can't give anybody a college education. You can help them get it. Now, it's a happy fact that by nature we all love to learn. Yes. But it's still true. That's where the initiative is. And so... If you pay them to go there, then they might well flounder. And, and that's, so that's bad for them, right? Uh, you need a strong reason to go to college. You need to believe in it. And you need to do things, you know, for any, you know, to equip yourself for a complete human life. You need a lot, you need to learn a lot of things that are not immediately practically applicable. the truth of that and the appeal of that is demonstrated by this crazy show we do, right? Yes. Why do people listen to that, you know? They love to know. But they have to, they have to know they love to know, and they have to bend themselves to the work. And if you make it financially advantageous, I, I don't mean just help them pay for it. I mean, it might be that you can live a life of relative ease, and go to class only a little, and borrow living expenses, and not pay it back. That's not good for people, and it destroys the atmosphere in colleges. And then add to that, 
Because, you know, a college is supposed to be an eager place. And when the conversation turns serious, everybody's got to get serious. I mean, I see, I see it at lunchtime every day. If I go eat in the dining hall, which I do many days, you go sit down with them, and they, they all look at each other and smile and say, here we go. You know, and it, the phenomenon is called being armed. And, <laughs> and, and, you know, mostly you just, you know, I love the kids. How could you not? And so they're talking, and I just talk with them for a while, and then something will suggest something, and I will ask a serious question. And their posture changes. They all start paying attention. They all start sitting up. Yep, I just sat up in my chair. Yep, I just sat up. The next thing you know, other kids come and join us. And then there's a crowd, right? They want to know, and I want to know too. And so we talk about what we can know. Well, you you can't disrupt that. That's a sublime activity. There's an argument that it's the highest human activity outside church. But then also it gives rise to a political force that is very powerful. You know, cross the Tennessee Department of Education and see what you get, you know, because they don't like it. And they're strong. And the press does what they say. Yes, so, so it's, you know, it's, uh, uh, it's very powerful, it's very organized, it's very self-aware. And, and just think, what kind of person would take satisfaction from telling teachers what to do when you don't even meet the students? You see, that's, you know, I don't do that. Uh, That's a very good question. Yeah. Why do they, what benefit do they derive? What pleasure or what pain do they avoid by doing that? And I would not want that job. I've never wanted to be an administrator because I like to teach. Yeah. Well, see, uh, at Hillsdale College, I guess I'm the mother of all administrators. Yes, you are. But uh, we don't... uh, we don't tell the teachers how to teach. But you also teach. Yeah, I teach, and, you know, and I hang out with the kids, and I love to do that. And, it, you know, I had an instinct when I came to Hillsdale College that I wanted it to be a place of great teacher teaching, and you can't get that done by telling people to do it. Yeah, you have to. You know what? That is, that's the best advertisement for getting your application at hillsdale.edu. Go and learn. Go and be taught by people who want to teach helmed by a president who believes in teaching for the benefit of the student, not for the benefit of the bureaucracy. I'm waiting for Hillsdale v. Biden or Hillsdale v. Cardona to be filed. We'll find out if that happens. Next week, the state of politics in the United States as the campaign season gets underway on the Hillsdale Dialogue with Dr. Larry Arndt. I'm Hugh Hewitt. All things Hillsdale are at hillsdale.edu. Thanks for listening to the Hillsdale Dialogues presented by Hillsdale College. For more episodes, search for Hillsdale Dialogues at SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, iHeart, or Ricochet. For more information about Hillsdale College, head to hillsdale.edu.